Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. This week, we are going to look at scriptures from 3rd Lent. The third Sunday in Lent is what the Sunday is called, and then the scriptures from Sunday to Saturday will be the third week in Lent. Now, there are five weeks in Lent, followed by Holy Week, and at the end of Holy Week, we celebrate Holy Saturday, beginning with Palm Sunday, celebrate Holy Saturday, and then we have Easter, and then we begin the seven weeks of Easter before we get to Pentecost. Well, we've got a ways to go before we get there. So we are in the middle of Lent, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful Lent and a wonderful journey with Jesus concerning our need for self-examination, reflection, fasting, prayer, um, worship, uh, Bible study, etc. All right, speaking of Bible study, here's a great set of scriptures that are in this post. You can see from Sunday to Saturday, you've got scriptures in the Old Testament in Genesis from 44 to 48. In 1 Corinthians, from 1 Corinthians 7 on Monday through 1 Corinthians 10 on Saturday. And then we look at the Gospel of Mark, 521 on Monday through 723 on Saturday. So, here we go. Now, we are in Genesis 44. We are in the first book of the Bible. And we're in a very important section from 37, chapter 37 to chapter 50, which is about Joseph. Now, Joseph's father's name was Jacob. His father's name was Isaac. His father's name was Abraham. And we cut it, started it all off with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Now we are in chapter 42, 44, and Joseph is the leader of Egypt. And we covered in past um, posts, uh, how he got to power, and by the miracle working of God, he was able to do that. Pharaoh is the leader of the um, Egyptian people, and uh, Joseph is number two. Now, what has happened is that Joseph's brothers, he's got 11, there's 12 total, they think he's dead. They think Joseph is dead. And there's they came from uh, Israel so that because of the famine in the land, they needed wheat. So they are going to come to Joseph to try to get some wheat. This is what Isaac, their father, asked them to, Jacob, their father, sorry, Jacob, their father, asked them to do. All right, so we are in chapter 44, 1 through 17. Now Joseph, verse 1, gave these instructions to the steward of the house. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for the grain. He did this as Joseph said. So, something terrible happened here. Watch this. Verse 3. As morning dawned, his men were on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to the steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Joseph is playing with them. Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and also used for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. So what happened is he planted that cup in there um, because he was wanting to deal with them in a very strong way. Okay? 
Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground, verse 11, and opened it. Then the uh, steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Remember, Benjamin's the youngest. Okay, Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel, and Rachel's a very important person in the book of Ephesians, I mean, book of, of Genesis. At this, they tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves on the ground, and Joseph said, What is it you've done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say, Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. So Joseph is dealing with them. He's still dealing with them regarding what they did to him, but they don't recognize him and they don't know who he is. Okay? You'll see we pick up this scripture on Monday, Genesis 44, 18 to 34, which is in this post. Bring them down to me, verse 21, so I can see for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. Now he's talking about his younger brother, Benjamin. Okay? And so they're now dealing with Benjamin. So read through that whole uh, sequence right there from 18 to 34. And watch this in 33 and 34. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. So, this is amazing what Joseph is doing. He's kind of torturing them in a bit and trying to teach them a lesson. Now, in chapter 45, he's going to make himself known. Joseph could no longer control himself, verse 1, before all of his attendants, and they, he cried out, Have everybody leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He finally showed himself, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Am I not still living? I'm your brother Joseph, verse 4. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The Lord mightily used Joseph in the most unforeseen of circumstances, in the most amazing, miraculous way to literally save Israel because they would have starved to death because the famine in the land was seven years and it was horrible. If God had not shown Pharaoh what to do by calling Joseph, and Joseph revealed in the dream, and then Pharaoh exalted Joseph to the highest, second highest position in the land with himself, as I said earlier, being the highest, they would have all died. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Verse 10, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. So this is how the whole Goshen idea started. And the reason that's important is the people of Goshen, the Jewish people in Goshen, are going to be multiplied tremendously. And remember, that's how we start in Exodus, with the new Pharaoh putting them in bondage. Okay. So let's go to, uh, we go down to 45. Read through 45. He said, I will give you the best land of Egypt, in verse 18, and you will enjoy the fat of the land. So he's now going to be used by God to bless his brothers, there's reconciliation, there's forgiveness, and there is joy. Chapter 46. 
So Israel set out all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Remember, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Remember, his name changed in chapter 32 of Genesis. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I make, will make you a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So God is going to do a great work with them in the land of Egypt. And so he had, we have information in uh, chapter 46, 1 through 7, and 28 to 34. Uh, so Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen in verse 28. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around the father and wept for a long time. So he's finally united with his father, Jacob. Great scene. Okay? He was allowed by Pharaoh. See, this Pharaoh is very, very positive about Joseph, and Joseph basically saved his civilization. And they were able to settle in the region of Goshen, Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So there was a tremendous blessing that God gave the people of Israel, but it didn't look like it was going to be a good thing. So sometimes in life, God will do something that doesn't make any sense at all, but he will turn it for good. Chapter 47, Joseph went and talked to Pharaoh in chapter 47. And um, so you want to concentrate on what those scriptures are. Look at verse 27, uh, which we see on Saturday. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen, region of Goshen. They acquired property and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. That's a long time. And the years of his life were 147. Wow, Jacob had quite an extraordinary life. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called out his son Joseph and said, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. Verse 30. But when I rest with your fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me, bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say. Swear to me. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So he made a promise and um, he kept his promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians were very godly people. They did a lot of positive things, but he also had some problems with them. So, Corinthians is a long chapter, lots of information here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 25 to 31, as you see on, um, on your, in your post. 25 to 31. Now, he's talking about marriage, sexuality, etc. And in verse 25, he's talking about virgins, virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give of judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. So, he talks about those who have not had sexual relations before, okay? And then he's talking about husbands, wives, unmarried, etc., okay? And you want to live, as he says at the end of verse 35, in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay? Be devoted to the Lord 
in both body and spirit. Okay? I am saying this for your own good and not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So ultimately, the first thing you want to focus on, either being single or married, it doesn't matter, is your undivided devotion to the Lord. That is the singular most important thing. Okay? And then he says in verse 39 of chapter 7, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So the idea of Christian marriage, of a person being a Christian, a husband and a Christian wife, is a very, very strong teaching in the Bible, particularly in 1 Corinthians. Um, she says, he says, Paul says in uh, verse 40 of chapter 7, in my judgment, she is happier if she stays as he is. Of course, Paul was a single person, but, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So he said he would remain single, but if you would like to marry when he dies, you may. Chapter 8. Now about food sacrifice to idols, which was a problem back in those days in the first century, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Good scripture. The man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know, but the man or woman who loves God is known by God. Okay? So we need to know God, we need to have love in our lives, we need to have a situation where we are devoted to the Lord. Knowledge can puff up, knowledge is a good thing, but if you use knowledge in the wrong way, you could find yourself in, uh, in trouble. Now, in chapter 8, the rest of chapter 8 is the idea about, be careful in verse 9, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So what he means there is, you don't want to do things with people that would entice them to sin or would be difficult. Let me give a simple example. If you're around people that are alcoholic or have a problem with alcohol or drinking too much or being under the influence, and that is not a good thing, you don't want to be serving alcohol at your house. You don't want to be doing things that will promote that. So it's better, even though you're drinking alcohol in moderation is an okay thing, you don't want to do it with a person or persons that have a problem with that, okay? Um, he says, therefore, here's the summary in verse 13 of chapter 8, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause him to fall. So I can go out and meet, eat meat, and I'm fine, but if my brother who is who has a problem with food sacrificed to idols, he, and he doesn't eat the meat, I don't need to make a big deal about eating meat. I'll just abstain, okay? Very important uh, chapter, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9 talks about the rights of an apostle. In chapter 9, uh, the entire chapter, though I'm free, verse 19, and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. It's a great way to live uh, as a leader in the church, okay? is uh, I, I'm free, I don't belong to anybody, but, and I could be overbearing, I could be autonomous, I can tell people what to do, but it's better to be a slave. He says in verse 22, to the weak I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, then I may share in his blessings. So he's not doing it for himself, he's not doing it for his personal agenda, great teaching, 
He's doing it for the sake of the gospel. The sake of the gospel is a bigger deal. It's more important. And that's what we need to be thinking about. How can what I'm doing on a daily basis be done for the sake of the gospel? Not myself. The sake of the gospel. What are the ways that I need to conduct myself? What are the things that I need to say? What are the things I need to do for the sake of the gospel? Now, I love uh, verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners won? This is in chapter 9. But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do, do it for a crown that will not last. Okay, They're going into strict training to run in a race. And when they win, the crown that they get is meaningless. However... We do it for a crown that will last forever. So what we're doing for Jesus is going to last forever. So what we do is really, really, really important, okay? We do it for a crown that lasts forever. So when you go into strict training for the Lord to get a crown that lasts forever, that has a higher degree of importance and significance. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. See, he takes it very seriously. No, I beat my body. Make it as my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he's got a very high view of the importance of the gospel in his preaching. He also has a very high view of the importance of him doing godly things and doing it the right way so that God will be pleased with what he's done so that he won't be disqualified. And finally, chapter 10 on Sunday, chapter 10, 1 to 13, um, Let's see, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the same cloud, verse 1, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied it, and that rock was Christ. It's very interesting that we see reflections of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay? He says in verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Famous scripture in Numbers. Do not grumble, as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. Ah, that's not good. So disobedience against the Lord is a very, very significant thing. And so we finish with 11 to 13. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So if you, th- you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You may think you're standing firm, but you, if you're not, you're going to fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So... We all face temptations, and when we sin against God, we, by succumbing to the temptation, we ask forgiveness, repentance, very important, very important. We want to do that on a daily basis. But he's going to give you a way out so you can stand under the temptation. So prayerfully figuring out how that's going to happen so you can do what God says is very, very important. Beautiful scriptures in 1 Corinthians as well as Genesis. Mark chapter 5. We are journeying with Jesus From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, 21 to 43. Now, this is the dead girl and a sick woman. So, Jesus crosses over the side of the lake, 
And one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus says, seeing Jesus, he pleads with him, falls at his feet. My little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she can be healed and lived. She's dying. So Jesus went. Now there was a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. She suffered greatly. And so she figured if she could get behind Jesus and touch his cloak, something would happen. But lo and behold, Jesus could feel that power had come out of him. So he asked, who did this? Who touched me? And many people were around Jesus. She comes forward. She's trembling. She tells him the truth. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. In the meantime, he goes uh, and finds out as he's going to heal Jairus' daughter that she is dead. And Jesus tells the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. So Peter, James, and John go in there. They were wailing and crying loudly. And they laughed at him when he said in verse 39, the child is not dead but asleep. And then he took her by the hand, Talitha Kumi, and she got up and walked around and they were shocked. So, in going to raise a person from the dead, we have three people that he raised uh, from the dead in the scriptures. I'm sure he raised many more people. We have three. This is one of the three, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus in John chapter 11. Those are the three people. Continuing on, in Mark chapter 6, we have a prophet without honor. Now, Conversely, he could not do many miracles there in verse 5 except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So in the previous chapter, at the last half of chapter 5, he does great miracles. Because of their lack of faith, he did very little. He sends out the 12 in chapter 6. And as we continue through chapter 6, we have the beheading of John the Baptist, a terrible thing. Read through that. It's a very, very famous passage. John's disciples came and took his body and laid him in a tomb after it happened. Jesus feeds the 5,000 from 30 through 46. Many people were coming and going. Come and find some rest, quiet place. Let's go eat. He had to take care of them. Large crowd. Now, that's 5,000 men. That does not include women and children. So maybe as many as fifteen or 20,000 people. That's an extraordinarily large number. He feeds them. Let's see. What are we going to be starting here? Uh, five loaves and two fish. The loaves were small. The fish were small. Five loaves and two fish. One person could eat all of that. There were plus 15,000 people. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up into heaven, verse 41. He gave thanks. He broke the loaves. He gave them to them. He divided the two fish among them. They ate and were satisfied. They picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. An extraordinary miracle. Equally extraordinary, besides raising this woman from the dead and stopping the bleeding, Jesus walks on water. You ever heard about Jesus walking on water? Most people have and they haven't read the Bible. Well, there it is. 
at the end of Mark chapter 6. The man is walking on water. This is the kind of miracle working power he had. So Jesus is a divine person, and he's a fully human person. Finally, in chapter 7, we have the clean and the unclean. And so there is a teaching on what that means. Remember, I've told you before that Jesus is also teaching. And he is teaching the, the uh, I believe it's he's teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus and was talking about unclean food. And Jesus was teaching them. They were very antagonistic. They did not believe Jesus. They were trying to trap Jesus often. He says, he says in verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God. You're holding on to the traditions of men. He says, what's important is what comes out of you. That's what makes you unclean. And then he lists in verse 21 and 22 what makes you unclean. 23, all these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. I'm much less concerned, uh, concerned about what comes out of you than what goes into you. You're concerned about all your little rules and regulations regarding food. I'm concerned about the way you're acting. I'm concerned about your thought life. I'm concerned about your will. I'm concerned about your doing God's will in terms of your actions, in terms of your behavior, your ethic. I'm concerned about what you believe. I'm concerned about what's in your interior being. Well, Genesis, 1 Corinthians, Mark, lots of wonderful, wonderful learning. I hope and pray that God will continue to bless you in your Lenten journey as we move toward Holy Week and the resurrection of Christ. But enjoy this week especially as you pray the scriptures and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. God bless you. We'll see you next week for Fourth Lent.